We're going to open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We're now in Exodus. As we tour through uh, the Bible this summer in an attempt to understand God's big story, what we call a meta-narrative story, a narrative about all the other stories in life. Without God's story in view, our individual stories don't make sense, and we, we become lost and confused and misled down here. And yet, the world has largely rejected God's story. It's tempting to want to make up your own story and call that reality. It's tempting to want to make up your own identity and say, that's my identity. When God's given us an identity, we're made in His image. And if we put our faith in Christ, then now our identity becomes child of God. And we become one of God's very own sons and daughters. As we've been going through Genesis, you'll notice that God starts the story really big. In fact, as big as you could possibly get a view. In the beginning, God created everything. The heavens and the earth. You can't get as broad of a start as that. And He quickly telescopes down, kind of like that Google Earth app where you're way up here and then boom, 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 and before you know it, you're looking in your neighbor's backyard, right? It's kind of scary. And God telescopes us all the way down to his creation and the creation of animals, and then on the, on the sixth day after creating all the animals, he creates man in his image. We get to Genesis 2, and he says it's not good for man to be alone, and he creates woman and the first marriage. And then telescopes down even further to the heart of man in Genesis 3, and where it all went wrong, and where sin entered the world. And then from there, then it starts to telescope back out until we get to Genesis 5, and we're back to a whole view of humanity, and everyone is corrupt, and God judges humanity with a flood. But then he telescopes back down into one family, one man, Noah. And from there, telescopes back out to mankind at the Tower of Babel, and God confuses all the languages. And and this this has been happening, where we get this broad view, and and then it zeroes in on an individual, all the way down to what's going on in that individual's heart. And then from there, it broadens back out again. It telescoped down to Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And we see now that we're in Exodus. We have this great nation. And so you're thinking, okay, we're going to take the broad view. Well, we are, but first we're going to telescope back into Moses and what was going on in Moses' heart. And if you think about it, this is the way you and I live life. This is how we live life. At times we get very focused on our individual needs and our thoughts and our concerns, but then there's the demands of our marriage and our family life, maybe our professional life, our community, something's going on in our nation, in the world, and the view gets so big that we we get afraid. It's too big. I can't handle any more bad international news. I don't know about you, but I... And I retreat. And I retreat back down to where life feels manageable, and that's all the way down to 
the individual personal level. And yet, I can't stay there for too long. Because the issues of my own heart sometimes are overwhelming. Just as overwhelming as international issues. And so, God forces me in His mercy to branch back out. And this is how life is lived. And it can become very tumultuous for us if we try to do that without God. If we try to interpret our personal lives and our community and our nation and our world without God's perspective. And so he's given us this book and it's written in such a way that we can interpret all of reality through his lens. Today we're going to see a man who would eventually be called the greatest man who ever lived, a man who was called a friend of God. And yet, in this passage, we are going to see a man very intimidated, feeling very inadequate. He did this first service, but I'll do it second service as well. Show of hands, anyone here ever feel inadequate to the task? All right. The three of you didn't raise your hand. See me after... And tell me your secret. Now let's try another quiz. Are there days or times in your life where you really do feel adequate? You're on top of the world. You feel like you can conquer all. And minutes later, sometimes only minutes later, it's gone. Have you experienced that? Okay, I'm not alone. We're in the right place together. We can relate to this text. God really knows us and knows the human experience. And so the title of the sermon this morning is God is Sovereign Even Over Your Inadequacies. This has been the theme here, that God is Sovereign. In fact, the Family Devotion Guide for this quarter says God is in control. He really is in control. Now, when I'm feeling wholly adequate in myself, I feel like I'm in control. But it doesn't last very long. You've got to make your world really, really small to feel like you're really in control. And yet, when we start getting a broader view of, of the world, we need a very, very, very big God. A sovereign God. And yet... Simultaneously, this great big sovereign God both feels very safe to us because someone is in control, and at the same time, very scary that someone else besides me is in control. One more show of hands. Anyone know what I'm talking about here? Can I get a... Yeah. All right. So, well, we're not just going to do group therapy this morning. We're going to go to the Word of God, and He's going to minister to our souls So when last we left our our would-be hero, Moses, he's in Midian. He fled as a prince of Egypt because he murdered an Egyptian slave master and had to run away from Pharaoh. So 40 years in Egypt, now 40 years in Midian as a lowly shepherd, taking care of his father-in-law's flocks. So he's 80 now. Get this, he's 80 I'm, I'm halfway there. I can't imagine living life all over again to get to 80 and then to hear this. 
when you turn 80. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro's father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, the angel of the Lord. Remember when we see angel of the Lord, we're fairly certain theologians are fairly certain that is Jesus Christ before he took on human flesh. The pre-incarnate Christ appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. You know, I've seen a lot in my 80 years, but this is new. i got to go check this out. It's why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that... He turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So, Moses knew of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had been taught about this God, may even make sacrifices to this God. But clearly at this point, there's no personal relationship with this God. It actually gives me great hope that an 80-year-old can still enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't give up on that uncle or that grandparent or... A person, you said, if they haven't come to Christ by now, it's not going to happen. Not true. Not true. Keep praying that God would reveal himself to your friend. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Again, I don't think there's a personal relationship here. Eventually, we're going to see that Moses would talk to God face-to-face, so to speak in the tabernacle. There's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Big difference about knowing facts about God and knowing God personally. We said last Sunday that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that fear of the Lord is that personal relationship that you have, that reverence and awe on the one hand, but on the other hand, knowing this is my Abba Father. He calls me his own. I'm his son. So God reveals himself to Moses. And we understand that we need to create an environment here that's welcoming for people who don't know God. And yet, at the same time, the Bible tells us there is none who seek God, no, not one. God does the seeking. We sang, what? I once was lost but now I'm found. We were the ones who were lost. God found us. He reveals himself to us. He's revealed himself to us in the pages of Scripture. He's revealed himself to us in the glory of his creation. So very specifically here, generally in the beauty of creation, and even more specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself to us. And he's revealed his plan to us. And here he's going to reveal his plans to Moses. 
The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. Beloved, if you are suffering today, God is aware. He is not aloof. He is not ignorant. He's just working on a different timetable than you and I and with a different plan. But we know He's loving and we know His ways are above our ways and His timing is perfect and His plans are beyond judgment. And so be patient in your sufferings and cry out to the Lord as we read from Psalm 5 and know He will hear your cry. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. It's amazing to me as we have archaeological evidence that all these people existed, though they do not exist today except the Israelite. The Israelite still lives today because God made a covenant with Abraham and is keeping his covenant. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now let's put ourselves in Moses' sandals for a second. I know he's not wearing them. It's a figure of speech. He's 80. He's lived the last 40 years of his life as a quiet shepherd in somewhere very Tehachapi-like, I'm sure. And he doesn't want to go back to Egypt. He, he has a price on his head there. He murdered an Egyptian. He got out of the hustle and bustle of this great dynasty, this powerhouse the Egyptian dynasty. He escaped to the quiet life. And now here's this God that he's heard about so many times and maybe even made sacrifice to, but now is meeting in a personal way. And God doesn't beat around the bush, pun intended, and tells him, so you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to tell this Pharaoh, this new Pharaoh, that God, God, the Egyptian pharaoh doesn't know, says, let my people go. What a task. Anything God is asking you and I to do pales in comparison to this. And yet, we find ourselves finding, uh, we find ourselves feeling inadequate and fearful often to answer God's call in our life. But imagine Moses I want to draw attention to his age as well. Mike Borsier, our, our chairman of our elder board, sent me an article this week pointing out that the 65 and over demographic, there are more people alive on this earth 65 and older than at any other time in recorded history. God has blessed humanity with great technology to keep, keep you alive. And you're filled with wisdom and knowledge. And you have resources. The bulk of our financial resources are 
in your pockets. I know you're like, hey, really? Really? That's what the article said, and I believe it. And God has not kept you alive on this planet and filled you with biblical wisdom and experience for you to go hang out on the golf course every day and go to the beach every day and buy trinkets and collect dust. Amen? Amen. John Piper has the book, Don't Waste Your Life, and I think there's a companion book about Don't Waste Your Retirement. We need you. I need you. I need you. I'm supposed to come in the pulpit every Sunday and, and tell people wisdom. And some days I feel very adequate, and other days wholly inadequate. Especially when people ask me, how do I shepherd my teenagers? <laughs> I just got one, you know. It's, <laughs> I think you just put on your seatbelt and pray a lot. Amen. <laughs> we need your wisdom. Don't disengage. In fact, not, not to insult you, but you're finally useful. I can't wait till I'm your age and I'll really feel useful. <laughs> but there's this other demographic fast on your heels, the, these millennials. There's so many children being born around the world. Western civilization, we've stopped having babies. But Africa and India and Asia, Southeast Asia, pretty soon the over 50% of the planet will be under the age of 20. Wow. They need to hear the gospel. This is exciting. Kids come to the Lord seems much easier than old, stubborn people. Again, don't give up on the 80-year-olds. But now's not the time to rest. You can rest for all eternity. Now's the time to reach the world with the gospel. So how does Moses respond to this call? It is normal to feel inadequate when God calls us to a difficult task. Let's just start with that. Point number one. It is absolutely normal to feel inadequate when God calls us to a difficult task. When you understand the call of the Christian life, you should feel inadequate. I, I'm worried about the young person who says, Oh, I could do that. I can lead. I can live a life of holiness in my own power, in my own strength. What did the Proverbs say? Pride comes before a fall, right? And a haughty spirit before destruction. So Moses says to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Now, I don't know if this was a who am I humility, who am I, or a who am I, like, leave me alone, I'm happy with my quiet life. And if you're struggling with feelings of inadequacy in light of God's calling to you, you need to go before Him and ask Him to show you, is this humility, or is this pride or fear of man or apathy? Pride, fear of man, or apathy, you know, Apathy. 
kind of busy, somebody else's job. I'm happy with my life. Don't rock the boat, God. Paul, the Apostle Paul, his feelings of inadequacy were, were grounded in his humility. Now, before he came to Christ as a Pharisee, he felt completely adequate for the task at hand. And then Jesus got a hold of his heart, and humility entered his life. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Remember, before he was an apostle, he was running around persecuting Christians and throwing them in prison. He says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I love this because Paul, the theologian, knows that the name of God is I am who I am. In his humility, he's just, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Now, how can you say that and be humble? There's no false humility here. Oh, I didn't work so hard. No, we know Paul worked hard. God gave him a difficult task. Now, how can he say this with humility? Because he says, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. God's grace saved me. God's grace empowered me to fulfill the calling God has given me. And he worked hard at his calling. At the end of his life, he said, I fought the good fight. I ran the race. I press on towards the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So that's the good feelings of inadequacy. I know in and of myself, I'm inadequate to the task God has called me, but he'll give me the grace to accomplish the task. But sometimes our feelings of inadequacy are actually grounded in our pride. Like, well, how could that be? If somebody says, I feel inadequate, isn't that humility? Not always. As we're learning, pride is sneaky, is it not? Jesus said to the disciples, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostles responded and said to the Lord, Oh, increase our faith. False humility. Oh, wow. I don't think I have enough faith for that, God. You'll have to increase my faith. I know this is false humility because Jesus doesn't come back and say, oh, you guys, you have enough faith. You can do it. No, he comes back and he rebukes them by telling them a parable. And he says, look, a servant goes out in the field and works all day. He comes in and his master wants his dinner. The servant doesn't say, well, I've been working really hard. I need to eat first. No, the servant obeys the master. You can forgive your brother seven times a day. You just don't want to. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture they live in. How embarrassing and dishonorable to continue to forgive somebody who sins against you. 
Sin against me once, shame on you. Sin against me twice, shame on me. Sin against me seven times in the same day, and I forgive you? Kick me out of the village. And so sometimes God is asking us to do something in His strength we are wholly capable of fulfilling, and our response to Him is, Oh, I could never do that, God. I could never talk to my neighbor about Christ. I could never stand up for you at work. I could never go back into that living room and face my spouse and ask forgiveness or extend forgiveness. Ask me anything, just don't ask me to do that. Secondly, though, and probably more often, we feel inadequate when we are called by God, when we're afraid of how others will respond to us. We're afraid of how others will respond to us. And this was Moses' response. He said, certainly, uh, God said, certainly, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, so not if, when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain, at this very mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to him, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, what if, what if they say to me, Well, what, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Okay, so we're going to see a string of what-ifs and excuses from Moses. God is merciful, though, and tells Moses his name, reveals himself to Moses personally. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Remember, all through Genesis, every time we saw somebody's name, it meant something about their personality or character. So what kind of name would be befitting of an infinite God? Well, there is no name that could fully encapsulate God, our infinite God. And so God's name for himself is simply, I am. That's what you need to know about me. Not, I became. I am. I've always been. I I was, I, I am, and I am to come. We sing that. In holy, 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 who was and is and is to come. And he tells Moses, because he knows the future, some will listen to you, some will not. But that doesn't change the call. Moses' job is to tell the people what God has told them to say. Not to worry about how they're going to respond. God says, they will pay heed to what you say. So when you go to the sons of Israel, they will actually listen 
And you with the elders of Israel come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And then goes on to say, But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So how would you like that task? Your job is to tell the king of Egypt to let my people go, and he is not going to say yes. Wouldn't you feel wholly inadequate for that job? I don't know about you, but I don't want a job where I know ahead of time I'm set up for failure. And yet, again, the definition of success and failure hinged upon Moses' faithfulness, not in how Pharaoh responds to him. You see, huge difference. Maybe God is calling you to continue to reach out to your wayward child. The call is be faithful to pursue your child, not get them to change. Love your spouse. Well, what if he or what if she doesn't respond to my love? That's not the call. Amen? The call is to love. Fulfill the Great Commission. What if I'm mocked when I share the gospel? Probably will be at some point. The call is to share the gospel. Paul understood his inadequacy in light of the task given to him. 2 Corinthians 2.15, he says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. So, When you go out and preach the good news, you're a fragrance. But you're a fragrance to the people who accept the gospel and a fragrance to those who reject the gospel. And to the people who reject the gospel, you stink. You smell like death. You remind them of their immorality. And they don't want to hear about your God. This is why the anti-God voices in our world are getting louder. Remember, they said, we're all about tolerance. We'll leave you alone if you leave us alone. No, it was never about tolerance. It was about shut up and go away. We want our sin and don't want to be reminded that it is sin. And so the gospel is the aroma from death to death. If they continue to reject the gospel... It's the stench of death all the way to eternal death. But to those who are being saved, it is an aroma from life to life. It's a sweet fragrance. This is the news I've been waiting to hear. That all my sins can be forgiven. I don't have to fear death because now it is just a doorway to eternal life. So, beloved, don't mask the perfume because you're afraid of being stinky to some people. 
because then you'll never be the fragrance of life to life for others. And Paul, when contemplating that heaven and hell is in the balance, says, and who is adequate for these things? I'm not. You're not. Paul's not. Adequate to change somebody's mind and heart. I can't change a heart. I can preach the gospel. I can, I can study, go to seminary, put together a sermon. I should do the best that I can unto the glory of God. But I can't change a heart. God's in the business of changing hearts, and He is completely adequate for the task. What if they won't listen? What if they get angry or mock me? What if, what if they think my life isn't a compelling motivation to follow Christ? What if I tell them about my Jesus and they examine my life and go, No, no, thanks. You're not so cool. Can you live with that? Better to be rejected by the world than to be rejected by God. Here's some good news, beloved. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. He doesn't look around going, oh, there's somebody wholly adequate. Hey, Russ. I'll call him to salvation. And if the rest of those folks back there get their act together, maybe I'll call them. No. He calls sinners to repentance. He calls what Paul calls chamber pots. The gospel is in earthen vessels, and that's what your Bible says. But you know what an earthen vessel was? It was the porta potty of their day. Disposable. Throw it out. Why would God put the glorious gospel inside chamber pots? That's how Paul considered himself, and he spoke in the first person plural. This is us, folks. And in our pride for us to compare ourselves to one another and say, well, I'm a, I'm a little bit more talented than the next person, all you're saying is, I'm a little fancier chamber pot than the next person. That ought to keep us humble. But it also gives us the motivation and the courage to say, oh, I don't have to become some great, eloquent speaker in order to lead someone to Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, 4, he goes on to say, after saying, who's adequate for these things? He says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit, capital S, gives life. The Holy Spirit gives life. Beloved, if we were charged with the old covenant, our job would be to convince people to to live righteously and be moral and keep every law perfectly. Who's adequate for that? Nobody. You can't make people live righteously. The Pharisees thought they could pull it off. And when Jesus came and said, let me tell you how good a job you're doing at this. You stink at it. And you not only stink at it, but when you go and try to make a convert, 
You make them twice the sons of hell as yourself because they stink of self-righteousness. Praise God that we are entrusted with the new covenant. By grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves so that no one may boast. This is the message we get to pray, preach. No, you can't clean up your act good enough to get into heaven. Praise God Jesus lived a perfect life for you. That's a message we get to preach. And then the Spirit gives life. Now Moses is still afraid of how others will respond in spite of God's assurance. Exodus 4.1, Moses said, what, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you, old man. Delusional vision out in the desert. Right? He's thinking, maybe back when I was 40 and a prince of Egypt, they're going to listen, but I'm just going to show up 40 years later. Who are you? Our job is to be faithful. God will supply the supernatural intervention. In fact, God promises Moses some supernatural intervention here. He says, if they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, the first sign was to throw his staff on the ground, it'll turn into a snake, an actual snake, he'll pick it up, it'll turn back into a staff. Then maybe they'll believe uh, the next sign, which was put your hand inside your tunic, pull it out, it was leprous, put it back in, pull it out, it's clean. If they don't believe those signs, then you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Pretty amazing signs. And we know... In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when the early church started, God gave the early apostles the ability to perform some signs and wonders and miracles. And yet, beloved, we don't need these things when we go and share the gospel. The supernatural intervention will come when the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart of the believer. You want a sign? There's a sign. People say, well, where's all the miracles in the Bible anymore? The skeptics. I say, every time some prideful, self-righteous wretch comes to Christ, there's a miracle. You want miracles? There's a whole room full here. And obedience to God with pure motives can only happen by God's supernatural intervention. Oh, people can obey some of the law out of pride or fear of punishment, but God requires us to follow Him from a pure heart, out of love, and only God can accomplish that. So justification is a miracle, and true sanctification is a miracle. There's your supernatural intervention. If there was no supernatural intervention, there shouldn't be no church 2,000 years later. The world has come against the church with everything it's got, and it continues to flourish. Here it is. Human wisdom, in fact, is wholly inadequate for the task God has given us. You can't use it as an excuse, I don't know enough. If you're saved, you know enough gospel to lead somebody else to Christ. Amen? 
1 Corinthians 1.21, uh, Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, right? Adam and Eve knew God perfectly when they kept their focus on the wisdom of God. When they wanted their own wisdom, they moved away from God. So chasing after worldly wisdom is never going to bring you closer to God, only farther away from God. It's okay to understand worldly wisdom so that you better understand the person you're witnessing to, but it's not necessary. It's okay to say, well, I don't know much about that. You know, No, I've never read the great secular philosophers. I don't know what Hume said or Kant or on and on it goes. But this I do know. Right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he loved me on the cross. I know that much. And Paul says that is foolishness to the world. A dead Jew on a Roman cross? This, this is what you guys are putting all of your trust and faith in? No, I'm putting my faith in a risen Christ. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to, to the Jews a stumbling block. They don't want a dead Messiah. And to Gentiles, foolishness. The logos, the, the, the great wisdom, logic of the universe became a man. What is this foolishness? But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Point number three, then, we feel inadequate when we focus on our own talent instead of God's sovereignty. This is where it boils down, beloved. When we're focused on our own talent or lack of talent, either way, we will feel inadequate. If we focus on our own talent, we'll only attempt to accomplish things that we can do in our own strength. If we focus on our own talent, we will only attempt things we can accomplish in our own strength so that we won't fail and we can take credit for our accomplishments. But if you're going to do things to God that matter eternally, it will not be dependent on your talent. So you have a choice to make. Do I shy away from the things of God knowing I can't accomplish them in my own strength? Or do I step out in faith like Peter, do I get out of the boat? Start walking on water. Keep my eyes on Jesus. I know I'm not supposed to be able to do this, and I can't in my own strength. Then Moses said to the Lord, I love this, Oh, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently, not as a shepherd, nor in the past, not as a prince of Egypt, and nor since you've spoken to me, your servant. So nothing's changed in the last five minutes. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, did you understand what Moses just said here? He seems wholly adequate for me to get a message across. Moses, if I'm hearing you correctly, you don't speak eloquently. Yes, well then I heard you loud and clear. So apparently he had some kind of speech impediment. Maybe a stuttering problem. 
Can I out my brother? Where is he? Where's, where's Nathan Heiner? He's one of the most brilliant young men I have ever met. He, he has some dyslexia. He'll tell you. The kids all know. Sometimes they have to say, did you mean this word? Yeah, what'd I say? It's not stopping him from ministering at all. Got through seminary via the internet, which is much harder than being there in person. He tells a story that it took a professor in college to tell him one day, it was a philosophy class, and a student had been sick for a week and came in and said, I need to get caught up. And the professor said, go talk to someone who knows what they're doing in this class. Talk to Nathan. Me? And it empowered him to say, I, I, I guess I'm out of excuses. And off he goes. Praise God. God's power is magnified in our inadequacies. Remember when Paul prayed to have the thorn in the flesh removed? And some people think it's an illness. Other theologians think it was an actual person who was kind of hounding him. The point is he prayed for God to remove that because he thought it was making him inadequate to the task. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. So most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So if you do have some actual inadequacies, not perceived ones, but actual ones, and you've asked God if he could take those away and he hasn't, just know that God's power is magnified in your weakness. Remember, we're chamber pots. Make me into a Ming vase, God, and then maybe people will listen to the gospel. No. Our inadequacy assures that faith is grounded in God's power. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Really, Paul? Yes, Paul. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This inadequacy you think you have from accomplishing the task God has given you is really not the stumbling block. It's there on purpose by God's design so that when you're no longer in the picture, the person you led to the Lord doesn't lose their faith. That gives me great courage to come into the pulpit every Sunday. And I admit there's days where I'm eager to get up here in days when my knees are trembling, they should probably be trembling every time I come in. It's probably on the days I'm thinking too highly of myself when they're not trembling. But knowing that the word of the Lord stands forever, not me, gives me great courage. 
Therefore, God is sovereign over our inadequacies. One of the most shocking passages in all the Bible. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf, or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God is sovereign even over our disabilities. It's not like it was some glitch, some mistake, oops. Oh, sorry about the blindness. There's purpose behind everything God does. You and I are inadequate by design. Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, oh, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Anyone but me, that's what he's saying. Whomever you will, just not me. Now look at this, I underline this. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. Beloved, there becomes a time when our merciful God says enough is enough with the excuses. And yet he's going to follow up his anger with tender, loving compassion. And he said, Is not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know, he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. I will give you a helper, your brother. He speaks just fine. Even God, when he rebukes us, he does so tenderly. Ultimately, dwelling on our inadequacies is just another case of our rebellion. It's usually not humility. I don't like the way God made me. Therefore, I can't do the things he's asked me to accomplish. If you only made me taller, if you only made me smarter, if you only made me stronger, if you only made me more impressive, if you only made me more beautiful, if you only made me more eloquent, imagine the things I could accomplish for you, God. But you get what you pay for. Or, I'm afraid I can't do what God is asking me because I will fail and then I'll look foolish. And I don't want you to look foolish either, God, so I'll just sit on the bench and let everybody else play in the game. Aren't you blaming God if He made you that way? And He why would He make you a certain way and then ask you to accomplish something you can't accomplish? It would be duplicitous of him. He wouldn't do that. Don't impugn God's character by saying, I can't do what you're asking me to do because you didn't make me good enough to do it. God knows what he's doing. Finally, I'm afraid that I can do what God is asking. But then I'll have to make some changes in my life that I really don't want to. So it's easier to use my inadequacies as an excuse. So outwardly you're saying, oh, I could never do that. Inwardly you're like, I know I could, I just don't want to. As Christians, one inadequate Christian speaking to a room full of inadequate Christians, we need to look at to the cross of Christ 
where God's love and grace nullify all of our inadequacies. I was inadequate to save myself. Christ was adequate for me. I'm inadequate to grow in holiness and in sanctification. In and of myself, I don't want to get holier. But it's not an excuse. In Christ, I am adequate. The power of God that raised Christ from the dead is working within me to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Jesus said, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. How does he prune? He gives you harder tasks to crush that pride and make you dependent on him so you'll bear more fruit. Any fruit I bear in my own strength, A, isn't eternal fruit, and B, is falling far short of the fruit that could be gleaned if it were Christ working in me and not me in my own strength. He says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Beloved, if you are in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ, if you've listened to the word and it's implanted in you, you are clean. You are adequate to work in His Temple, you're adequate to work in his field. You're clean. So now, he says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do Nothing. There you have it. Without Christ, we are completely inadequate. But in Christ, we have everything we need to accomplish what He's called us to do as the church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for the grace You pour out on inadequate wretches like us. And yet in Christ, you call us righteous and sons and daughters of the Most High and ambassadors of the Gospel. Teach us to ground our confidence in you and not in our cleverness, our wisdom, our talents. For even those of us who think too highly of ourselves, eventually you will put us in a situation where we are so inadequate to the task that it will cause us to fall to our knees at the foot of your cross and cry out for mercy and help. Lord, may we not have to wait for that day, but do that now. Kneel at your cross and cry out for mercy for our spiritual inadequacies and then rise to our feet in Christ and accomplish what you've called us to do wholly adequate for the task because it's your gospel and your Holy Spirit that empowers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.